Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 28th, another Keenon show, another show about conversation. And this show is a conversation about conversation, a kind of meta show. Uh, my guest today is co-author of an interesting new book, Leading with Heart, Five Conversations That Unlock Creativity, Purpose, and Results. Uh, his name is Edward Sullivan, and he's just down the road from me in Manhattan, in New York. Um, Edward, you're an executive coach. How did you come to write a book about conversation and the value of conversation? Hmm. Well, thank you so much for having me, um, and thanks for the question. Um, Leading with Heart is ultimately a uh, an exploration of the conversations that lead to uh, better outcomes in business. As a as an executive coach, my craft is having conversations and helping people have better conversations. We found in our work with my business partner, John Baird, our combined work over 40 years working at various companies in the C-suite of um, companies ranging from Apple and Nike to many of the top startups of today, that what's really lacking in the, uh, in the boardroom and in many of the uh, teams that we're working with is quality connected conversation. Uh, people know how to give orders, they know how to set a vision, but they don't know how to connect with and motivate their teams. And that's what this book's about. I'm just curious, uh, Edward, before we get into the book, um, as we speak, there's almost hysteria about Elon Musk's uh, purported uh, acquisition of Twitter, much of which mm -hmm. he's been doing on Twitter itself in terms of the conversation. What do you think of Elon Musk as a conversationalist? He seems to be scaring a lot of the people at Twitter. That's interesting. Elon Musk is certainly a lightning rod. Um, I actually saw him speak at TED last week, the day that he announced he was intent, he intended to buy Twitter. And um, I find that what he's been able to bring to the world in terms of technology is frankly incredible. And his career is sudden, certainly the kind of career that many people are seeking to emulate. People come to us and they say, help me be the next Steve Jobs. Help me be the next Elon Musk. Uh, the only problem is some of those like larger than life entrepreneurs made their, built their success on, on the, the cult of personality. And that is not frankly sustainable for most businesses. Uh, most businesses, um, require a, a finer touch and a more thoughtful touch in leadership. Um, most people who go out and try to be the next Steve Jobs or the next Elon Musk fall flat on their face because people don't want to work with them. Well, even Elon Musk, it seems, sometimes falls flat on his face, when it, certainly when it comes sometimes. to conversation. That's um, you brought up Steve Jobs, of course, another brilliant man who perhaps was not the most gifted conversationalist, enjoyed talking. I'm not sure how good a listener he was. You mentioned that um, one of your clients was Apple. A lot of people are perplexed with the success of Tim Cook. Hmm. Uh, in your experience, is it because perhaps he's a good conversationalist? And if it's not Cook, 
who would be your corporate paradigm of uh, a successful conversationalist who has indeed mm. led with heart? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. More and more, we're finding that uh, leaders are starting to lead with heart because not only does it lead to better business outcomes um, overall, on average, it leads to better business outcomes, but also it's what workers, employees are demanding right now. Um, the main reason people are leaving their jobs in the great resignation is because they're fleeing from toxic work cultures. They want to feel seen, they want to feel heard, they want to feel respected. And um, from what I understand, I've never worked personally with Tim Cook, my business partner and co-author John Baird has. He's had a 25-year career um, advising uh, the senior leaders at Apple and coaching through the succession planning at Apple. And um, what he has reported to me and what we write about in the book is that Tim Cook is someone who knows how to lead leaders. He knows how to have those conversations. He knows how to connect with people and motivate them from their core drivers and he need, knows how to ask what they really need to feel successful. And believe it or not, Steve Jobs is really good at that, too. Um, we explore in the book this idea that a successful system needs just a little bit of fear, just a little bit of stress to get people motivated. Um, early studies in EU stress, which is this idea of we need just enough heat in the system to get people activated. Um, there's also been studies around EU fear. There's just a little bit of fear in the system, helps people get up out of their seat, helps them get creative and feel activated. Steve Jobs was great at that. And you um, describe, um, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps you might give some other examples of living CEOs who are good conversationalists from the book yeah. or from your sure. other experience. Yeah. Um, we opened the book with an exploration of one CEO I've had the privilege of working very closely with over the last four years. His name is Dave Heath, and he's the CEO of a direct-to-consumer uh, comfortware company called Bombas. Now, you might think, you know, a company that makes uh, socks and underwear and T-shirts, how successful could this company be? Um, frankly, very, very successful. They've built an incredible brand, and they've built uh, an incredible team of close to 300 people here in New York City. And what makes Dave so special is his ability to listen to what people on the team really need, what they need to feel safe, what they need to feel um, like they belong, and ultimately what they need to feel creative. And it's his ability to connect with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis and by through his example, teach people in the organization to lead with that same style that I think has been the secret sauce in their success as a company. Edward, we've done lots of shows about the future of work, the future of the corporation. Mm. Um, and one of the things that keeps on coming up, and this is sometimes dealt with critically by authors and commentators and others more sympathetically, is the idea of work as being um, uh, the, the spiritual, a, a spiritual home, particularly mm -hmm. in a world, a society where idealism, spirituality, truth, agreement uh, is in scarcity elsewhere, whether in the conventional church, whether in politics, whether in society. Is this an idea that resonates with you, the, the meaningfulness of, of work in terms of what people are actually looking for when they come into the, the physical or metaphorical office? I think that's exactly right. 
what people are looking for is meaning in their lives, especially coming out of two years in the pandemic. We've felt like we ha haven't really belonged to a team, to a system, to a tribe in a sense. And today, with everyone leaving their jobs and looking for new jobs, they're asking the question, not just where can I make more money or where could I get more equity in a, in a new company, but where will I find meaning and purpose in my life? That has been what we've been missing in the workplace. Um, over the last 20 years, the American workplace became you know, the bastion of productivity, but not the bastion of meaning, purpose, and belonging. And I think the best leaders today are seeing that trend and getting in front of it and creating not just cultural um, paradigms in their office, but also business models that give meaning. So you'll see a lot of companies today, they're B Corps. They are social good organizations. They focus on donating a certain percentage of profits back to um, communities they serve or uh, a company like Patagonia, 1% for the planet. Well, you right? say a company like Patagonia, Ed, but it's always Patagonia that gets brought up. How many Patagonias really are there or can there be? You know, there's, there's, there's hundreds and thousands of Patagonias out there. Uh, Patagonia is just such a, a, um, an obvious example. And I'm, I'm a 25-year um, fan and, and, uh, and client of Patagonia. But um, a company like Bombas that I just mentioned, they donate for every pair of socks they sell, they donate a pair of socks to a homeless shelter in uh, anywhere in the, in the United States. But, but Edward, that... uh, is it, should we, and, and this isn't critical of you or Bombas, but should we be concerned, worried about a system of American capitalism which creates such radical inequality? I'm not accusing the Bombas people or mm. yeah. even the apples of the world. Uh, so we have a, a profoundly inegalitarian society of an enormous mm -hmm. wealth and poverty uh, and then you get these companies because of the dysfunctionality of politics and the yeah. moral turpitude of most politicians both on the left and the right in america we have um, a system where companies donate socks to homeless shelters and we should be mm. eulogizing them is this something that smells of hypocrisy is it worrying in on some level well, in some sense, capitalism has always created some level of inequality, right? I think, you know, back in the Gilded Age, we saw, you know, the rise of the Vanderbilts and the, and the Carnegies and, you know, such incredible disparities of wealth and incredible um, personal wealth that was um, built at that time. Many people go into founding companies because they have a dream of achieving some type of financial freedom, intergenerational wealth. Um, a lot of people are motivated by that. And I think that that is one of the things that's driven innovation. It's driven research. It's driven development. Uh, one of the reasons that, you know, we can enjoy so many interesting products is because at some point someone felt they could profit from developing it. Uh, what's really under your question is, what is the responsibility of those individuals who do accumulate wealth in giving back and in um, creating opportunities for underserved communities? You know, are they um, running the next Enron where it's all about personal wealth um, and they are more than willing to um, have zero morals and values to do that? Or are they running organizations in which they prioritize diversity they, and prioritize inclusion and they prioritize giving back? Many companies today are doing that proactively. It's interesting that you led with diversity and inclusion. There are 
substantial groups of American citizens who are not particularly enthusiastic about those words. Does that place you politically? Might it be fair to say that there is a, a left of center, a progressive quality now to, to many, if not most, American corporations, which is ironic given the fact that it's always been the left that has been critical of, of corporate America? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I think it's no coincidence that most innovation that's happening in the country right now is on the coasts. Um, 95% of our clients are in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Uh, that is where most venture money is going. That is where a lot of the best universities and research institutions are. But I think there's a, a larger conversation here to have about how do we bring that opportunity into the heartland? How do we bring that opportunity back into uh, the Rust Belt, even. Um, mm -hmm. We're finding many companies are purposefully opening up new headquarters in Nashville, in Columbus, Ohio, um, in Detroit, just so they can take advantage of the fact that a lot of people in those towns, very smart, very committed individuals, don't have the same opportunities for jobs that the folks on the coast do, and they're creating those opportunities now. It's interesting, Edward. I spent the first part of this week um, in Europe. I was in Amsterdam and Brussels do doing a series of interviews with George mm. Packer, very brilliant Atlantic uh, author, uh, mm -hmm. columnist at The Atlantic and author. He has a new book out about four Americas. And one of those Americas he calls Real America. And it's the cult of the Sarah Palins and the Donald Trumps. Um, they're searching for... Well, they're not searching for authenticity. Real America thinks they've discovered it. Um, right. What you're arguing in your book are the need for conversations about authenticity. So it may be reality. So it may be ironic, but both sides of America, both the coast, the coastal America and the America of Trump and Palin, they're all looking for the same thing. They're all looking for... yeah reality, for authenticity. Is this a potential bridge for the future, do you think? I mean, I would hope so. I think everyone's really looking for the same thing and everyone thinks that they're approaching it from the right perspective, right? Right. The right and the left, everyone thinks they're right. No one thinks they're wrong. No one thinks they're evil. Everyone thinks they're the good guy in the story. And our hope with this book is to provide um, business leaders in particular, but really it's a book for anyone, provide them with tools to have those conversations about what do you really need to feel safe and to feel like you can have an honest conversation? What's your baseline? What's your foundation? You know, do you need to, um, we even start in the book with, have you gotten enough sleep? You know, are you eating well? Are you exercising? Are you taking care of yourself? If you're not taking care of yourself, you can't show up authentic authentically to have a, a real conversation. You might be triggered by fear or by scarcity or something else. We talk about addressing people's fears, right? A lot of people right now, especially in politics, are operate, operating out of a place of fear. If we can address those fundamental fears, move people out of that fear response, that fight, flight, or freeze response they're having, then we can have more honest conversations. But unfortunately, the way the media is working right now, the way the Facebook algorithm is working right now, we're all being delivered messages that are purposefully engineered to trigger us into a fear response. And I think it's the, it's that's the, one of the it's problems. The, yeah, and then given the subject and title, subtitle of your book, 
social media isn't producing conversation. There's a cult no. of the ideal of conversation and community. But these are echo chambers. People aren't really talking to one another. Are the conversations that you're arguing for and leading with the heart, are these top down? Because as you say, they're directed to CEOs and corporate leaders. But are you suggesting yeah. that real conversation is a two-way thing? It can't just be articulated from above? Absolutely. This is a book. Originally, it was written for our clients, for the CEOs of major companies and major startups uh, around the country. And as we began writing it, we realized that this toolkit for anyone, many of our clients, CEOs of companies will come to us and say, I don't know why, but my marriage is getting better the more I work with you, because they're learning how to have more authentic conversations. They're learning how to show up and ask those questions. You're going to put the, ther you're gonna put the marriage therapists out of business. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, but I think you're right. It is a two-way street. I think there is a responsibility of leaders to um, start some of these conversations, to model that these are the important conversations for us to have. Brene Brown's done a lot of great work around vulnerability and leadership. When the leader sets the emotional standard, everyone else can follow. But it's also a tool that anyone in the company can use. We've also done a lot of shows on gender and female leadership. Mm -hmm. um, I assume that you're arguing, obviously, you're arguing for diversity and leadership as well. But do, and, and again, I don't want to fall into any traps of my own here, but other groups of people, perhaps women, perhaps particular cultures that bring certain qualities to conversations that others, particularly white men, don't? Hmm. No, that's an interesting question. Um, I do find in my work that certain clients, whether they be women, whether they be people from specific parts of the country, people show up with their own um, preferences for being able to have heart-led conversations. Some people, it just comes very naturally. And it might have to do with their family, might have to do with their hometown, may have to do with the cultural context in which they were raised. But I think the important message is that everyone can learn to have these conversations if they allow themselves, if they give themselves the permission to be a little bit more vulnerable. I think one of the problems in, you know, we've seen over the last couple of years that's been reported on widely is toxic masculinity. What is that? Toxic masculinity is when men often white men, are approaching a conversation, they're approaching the workplace with a big shield up, right? They are guarded, they're living out of fear, and they're acting out sometimes violently, sometimes in misogynistic or sexist ways, because they are feeling a deep insecurity in themselves, and they're not able to talk about that and express that. They're overcompensating in some way. That's really what toxic masculinity is um, at its core. And if we can bring those men into the conversation, help them lead with heart, help them talk about their fears, help them talk about what they need to feel safe to even have that conversation. That would be an incredible breakthrough. You might be turning off some, turning off some of those white men, Edward, with all that. We might. Female. They, they, they know it's true. If they're turned off by it, it touches something inside them and they know it's true. It's funny. We did a show with Monica Guzman, a young, um, a young uh, journalist based in Seattle on conversation, political conversation. She's involved with a group called Better Angels, which is bringing conservative oh. and liberal Americans together. 
she's really saying the same thing as you. I wonder if there's some movement here, Edward, a political, broader cultural movement, which I which we can join the dots on. Yeah, I think you're right. There is a, a, a trend afoot in which we're realizing that the way we've been doing business isn't working anymore. One trend we talk about in the book is this idea of the work-life balance. People feel like there is a work self and there is a home self, right? And I have to be a different person when I show up at the office. All the research and a lot of the, the latest books that have come out have um, supported the idea that we just need to be one person in all of these situations. If we can show up authentically and bring whatever is going on with us into the office, feel safe talking about it, have uh, be surrounded by colleagues who make space for that, then we kind of shake all that off and can get to work. If I show up at the office and something terrible has happened at home, I can't talk about it. I'm just stuffing those feelings all day. When someone comes at me with criticism, I'm very likely to lash out at them because I haven't been able to express what's going on inside me. If I can let that out, have a safe working environment with my colleagues, then I'm much less likely to engage in any kind of disruptive or toxic behavior. Edward, you mentioned you were at the TED conference a couple of weeks ago when Musk did his interview. A lot of this is TED talk. It's the kind of material that's often covered in TED talks. I don't know how much the tickets are for TED, but they're many thousands of dollars. Uh, what would you make of criticisms of this, that it, it, it's elites talking to one another, making them feel more virtuous about themselves? Yeah, I think that that has been a criticism that's been levied against TED um, over the years. I do know that over the last well, few no, years... Leaving they... TED, I don't want to turn this into a conversation about TED, okay. but this broader conversation about being authentic, revealing your real feelings, all the rest mm. of it. Oh, that's interesting. As if um, being authentic and vulnerable is somehow reserved for the elite. I don't know if that's a, well, that's that a very valid argument. You know, that you're, you're teaching it to your very wealthy clients. It's the sort of thing yeah. that gets discussed at elite events like TED. I always right. associate the word authenticity with Ariana Huffington. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, again, this is not the kind of material that is discussed very broadly in the right. heartland. In, and that's in exactly what, uh, In what uh, George, uh, uh, George Packer would call real America. Yeah, yeah. And that is exactly the point. And that's the reason we wrote the book. Um, we do have a very elite clientele. We work with top CEOs of major corporations and major startups. Um, many people, most people can't afford to work with us. But we wrote this book to bring the message out to the multitude of people who really need to hear it. And what's interesting is, as the message of the book is getting out, we are getting invited to speak at some of the conferences and some of the um, events in the heartland. Just last week, I booked uh, a keynote speech at the Southwestern Colorado Leadership Summit in Durango, Colorado, to talk with farmers, ranchers, small business owners in the heartland of America about leading with heart. They said, could we make leading with heart the theme for the entire conference? Would you feel okay with that? And I said, it was just fine. I hope you charge them. Um, <laughs> uh, Edward, uh, you say that ultimately you discovered that leadership isn't as much about following formulas as much as it is about connecting authentic mm -hmm. authentically. 
What does yeah. that mean, connecting authentically? Yeah, connecting authentically is all about getting curious and asking questions, um, as opposed to following formulas is about thinking you have the answer. I read this book on leadership, so I need to do X, Y, and Z to be an effective leader. Having those connected conversations is showing up with curiosity, saying, I don't have all the answers. I won't purport to know all the answers, but I do know how to ask great questions. It's the foundation of effective coaching. And we've actually found that the leaders we work with who learn to be better coaches through our work with them end up being better leaders. Maybe I should be an executive coach, Edward. What, what, I'm sure what you'd be great. You ask, you ask great questions. Well, I'm half joking. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll look for a job. <laughs> I certainly think it probably be it pays better than running keen on. Finally, Edward, you've been very, very good tempered in terms of some of my questions. I wonder if you might just talk about these five conversations very briefly, okay. because you deal with them in the book. W what are they? They're five different. They're not just subject conversations. They're different kinds of conversations that people need to learn. That's so perhaps right. you That's might right. briefly go over each of these five. Happy to, happy to. So the five conversations that we explore in Leading with Heart are, first, what do you need to feel creative and resourceful? Uh, a lot of people never stop to ask, what do I even need to feel finely tuned? You know, you have to tune the instrument before you can play it well. And by addressing what you really need, whether it be to eat well, to stop drinking coffee, to sleep better, Maybe you need to feel safe. You need to feel included. You need a little bit of more recognition. We also explore environmental needs in terms of, you know what? I can't work in an environment that has um, artificial light and really buzzy, noisy things. I need to work in a, in a more peaceful environment. That's what makes me feel effective. So people need to get very honest with themselves and with each other about their needs. The second conversation we explore is what are you afraid of and what fears are holding you back? We find that most uh, in relationships that go sideways in at the home and also in the office are from people acting out of fear. They're in a fear response, so they're fighting, they're shutting down, or they're just leaving the room altogether. They're quitting yeah, it's before. Interesting, this. We, we've done a number of shows on, on fear, mm -hmm. on the need to fight fear, John Hagel, a number of other authors. So this is, again, a, a, a fairly common um, argument. It's an interesting right. one. Right. But imagine, like, how revolutionary is it for us to be able to have conversations about fear in the workplace? We think that we need to show up and be strong and never let them see you sweat. Our, in our work, we say, no, let, let them see you sweat. Be very honest about what makes you sweat. Be very honest about it. And other people are more likely to be honest, too. Um, we, people think that they're working with a bunch of sharks, but most people just want to be able to put their guard down and, and have honest conversations. Uh, the third conversation we explore in the book is what do you really desire? What, what motivates you? What drives you? And how can those desires potentially derail you? So we explore competition. We explore the desire to have uh, power and influence. We just explore um, the desire to learn. And each of these has a shadow side. You know, you can take competition too far and become uh, unethical. You can take power and recognition too far and be someone who hoards power. And we explore through stories of um, a certain number of uh, famous individuals and also our clients, how to have those conversations and how to face that this idea that we might be derailed if we take our desires too far. And then the, the fourth and fifth conversations are around 
our gifts. What gifts do we need? What's going unexpressed? Many times people feel that they're very good at a certain job when actually there is an underlying gift that um, could help them explore other roles in the company or other jobs entirely. Um, I learned through uh, somewhat emotional experience in graduate school that my essential gift is empathy. I can smell people's uh, emotions from across the room. And I learned that through difficult experiences in childhood. Most of us develop our gift as some type of compensation or defense mechanism in childhood. And it's by going in and having those conversations and exploring that, that we really tap into our gift. You may and have finally, get the E word in, uh, Edward, uh, empathy. Empathy. We've, empathy uh, along with that's authenticity, right. that's a, a word that um, appears very often in our show. We even did a, Sherry Turkle has a new autobiography out, The Empathy Diaries. So it's, it's, mm. it's uh, not, not surprising that you consider your great gift to be empathy. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, and the, the final uh, question we explore is, what is your purpose? Everyone, as you said at the top of the call, people are feeling like they're, 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 there's almost like a dearth of meaning in their life, a dearth of fulfillment. And spiritual that's because vacuum, yeah. a spiritual vacuum, exactly. And uh, that's the culmination of the book. You know, if you don't have your needs met, if you're operating out of fear, if you are, if you derailed yourself with your desires, you're never going to be able to tap into your core purpose. So it's one of the reasons we build up to that question. Um, what kind of conversations do you have with your co-author? I know John Baird was supposed to be on the show. He couldn't make it. Do you ever argue yeah. with him? You know, it's funny. We, we never really argue, but we do have disagreements sometimes. And uh, John is one of those amazing individuals. He's one of the you know, legendary coaches of Silicon Valley. I'm honored to be able to work with him. Uh, we, he, he basically, he and his former partner bought my company in New York five years ago, and we created a, uh, a joint um, national coaching organization at that point. And um, we mainly uh, learn from each other now. And when we do disagree, we talk it out. We have the conversations in the book. Do you ever shout? Um, you don't seem the kind of guy, Edward, to have arguments or get angry. Do you ever shout at anyone? I have sometimes, yeah. I was raised around a lot of shouting, so I know what that is. I think I have that in my nervous system, but I'm very um, careful about who I spend time with and the kinds of situations I put myself into so I don't get triggered into that state. I think everyone has a little bit of shout in them somewhere. Should argument though, constructive, responsible argument be part of these conversations? Because after mm -hmm. all, we, we differ in our interests, our yeah. ideas, especially at the corporate level. There are very legitimate disagreements on, on strategy, on focus, on priorities. Yeah, I think, you know, you may have actually um, gotten a, an early copy of our book or something because we do explore constructive conflict as one of the main goals in having these conversations. If I know what triggers you, if I know what you need, if we have built trust, we're able to engage in rigorous, heated debate and still be mates afterwards, right? We can still be colleagues afterwards. Um, it's the organizations that have no conversation, no conflict, or too much conflict. That's the two zones we're trying to get out of. We want to get right in the middle where we have constructive conflict, rigorous debate, and that's where the best ideas and results come from. This is actually very much in keeping with Stephen Covey's new book on trust. I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with his work. Very Edward so. Sullivan, 
Uh, we didn't argue. We had good conversation, respectful conversation, and you've offered me a job, so uh, <laughs> I need money, Edward, so perhaps we'll talk after the show. Um, Looking forward to it. In addition to your very interesting new book, Leading with Heart, Five Conversations that Unlock Creativity, Purpose, and Results. If you can't afford uh, John Baird and Edward Sullivan's um, fees, then it's a, it's a good way into this conversation. What else should people be reading, Edward, these days? You know, I'm really enjoying uh, 4,000 Weeks right now, which is an mm. exploration on time management. And yeah. um, other people are brought I need to get him on the show. He's a British author, right? Yes, British author. And uh, it is... You might give him... Uh, I've forgotten his name. What's his name? Uh, I got the book upstairs on my bedstand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish I knew his, his name. Um, but the, the book is incredible because it basically confronts the idea that time is something we should manage and instead um, helps us understand that time is something that's constantly flowing. We need to get into the flow of it and we need to be very purposeful about how we spend our time and what our priorities are as opposed to trying to cram everything in. That's a, a big myth that we can manage our ways um, out of the, the hectic pace that we're trying to live. And finally, Edward Sullivan, the co-author of Leading with Heart, one of America's leading corporate coaches who teaches CEOs how to be better, both in moral and in economic and corporate terms. Uh, Edward, who runs the world these days? Who's in charge? Who's in charge? I would say uh, the, uh, you know, the commentators on TikTok are more and more in charge these days, which is a very scary thing. 